This morning we are going to uh, uh, talk about having a sacrifice of praise. And this was uh, initiated by the family of, of Bernard Messiah. And um, just kind of give you a little background. He may share a little bit later on. But uh, many of you know, uh, of course, of the brain surgery that he dealt with earlier uh, this year. And, of course, we were in prayer for him and his family. It's the second time he had to go through a surgery to remove a tumor. And um, certainly something we were very prayerful about and asking God to work. And uh, his attitude was to see God do something through this. And uh, and I, I believe we've seen a miraculous healing in many ways, of, of especially what could have been. Uh, but one of the things that uh, he had in, in his worship of the Lord afterwards was to uh, make a vow before the Lord to give a sacrifice of praise and uh, before his people. And uh, this is something he shared with me, and, and, and uh, of course it's something we see in the Bible. But honestly, I, I grew up uh, in a church like this, and I had never seen what we would call a sacrifice of praise service. And so this was all new information to me, and uh, I was like, well, what, what is this? And Okay, I, I know that's in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. Is this something we still to do today? And and so in, in searching the scriptures, uh, I found it to be a good principle uh, of to teach. And so this is a, kind of a teaching point, but that was initiated by one of the families uh, in, in our church. And uh, many of you know that this family is from Kenya. Uh, and um, they have a couple of daughters. They actually have several uh, children uh, here, but uh, two of the older Margaret and Judith uh, also uh, have beautiful voices, and I've been able to listen to them uh, sing at different times. And so, uh, Margaret and Judith Messiah, if you'll come up now and, and lead us in song. Praise the Lord. Um, we are just going to sing um, a hymn in Swahili. Uh, it's called My Feet Looks Have to Be. Um, what I find interesting about this song is that when we came here, we came by faith. And we live here by faith. And we trust in God in everything. And so it's kind of been a testimony in our lives. And we just want to thank God for that. Yes, Wow. 
Thank you, dear sisters, and um, I know they sang that in Swahili, so Mike, will you give a translation for <laughs> We'll have to talk to them later on about that. And um, now, now, next time, if we can get our folks ready, I want you to do it Kenyan style. All right, Kenyan style? All right, now, a Kenyan style is going to be a little bit more upbeat, right? Right? But we'll have to get our folks ready uh, for something like that. Um, we may have to jump up and down, at least clap uh, during, during that part. Uh, so thank you. Thank you for uh, sharing. I'm going to ask that you turn in your Bibles today to Luke chapter 17. Um, we're going to take a little break from our theme of what we're learning about the Spirit of the Lord. But it is very tied still uh, in that the Bible talks about being filled with the Spirit of the Lord in Ephesians 5.18. And then in verse 19 and 20, one of the things that come after that is that a... Side effect of being filled with the Spirit of God is thanksgiving, having a thankful heart. And so we're going to uh, focus on, on that aspect uh, this morning. Now, um, our notes will not be on the screen for you, so I guess you just have to listen, and I'll try to make it very clear to you uh, exactly what the, uh, the main points uh, uh, today will be as we, we study this passage in Luke 17. We'll look at it verse 11 through 19. I was uh, been telling the story uh, to Evan, uh, bedtime stories of, of Moses and and the journey going from uh, Egypt into the Promised Land, and uh, so each night I just talk a little bit of the story. And it just was occurring to me uh, in that forty years journey how much of an issue it was with people complaining, not being thankful. It was called grumbling, and uh, it was a constant theme as it comes out and. And we were talking about the story of uh, the people complaining because they were getting manna every day. Which, in my mind, I'd love to just to see and try the manna. It had to be a superfood. I mean, that's all they had every day was, was manna. And if you can just imagine the scene where they get up in the morning and they get the food for the day and they eat it. And they go to bed that night and it dawned on me they had nothing in their pantry. And this shocked me. I mean, it's bad news when we have nothing in our pantry. And what are we going to do in the morning? And we've got to go to the grocery store before we get... And, and so they wake up with nothing in the pantry, and they go out, and there it is again. Manna. What is this stuff? And, and that was the, the literal meaning of the word manna. And, and that's what they were nourished by for 40 years. <laughs> for 40 years. And so the complaint starts coming. I don't know when it starts complaining in that 40-year odyssey. Uh, what, what, when exactly did they get tired of eating manna? Um, but somewhere along the way they did, and they started complaining, and they said, God, I, I want some meat. I want, man, I wish you could go back to Egypt. We had fruits and vegetables and, and, and meat. Oh, I would just love to sink my teeth into some nice white meat. And so that's the, the idea. And they start complaining to Moses, and, and God hears this, and, and, and God says, okay, I'm going to give them what they want. And he gives them what they want. And he says, I'm going to give them so much. I'm going to let them give into their desires. I'm going to let them give into their complaints to the point where they will get sick on it. And I was telling the story about the flock of, of, of quail coming in, the birds coming in, and they were all able to, uh, you know, waist high, they were able to get them, and, and how they ate and ate and ate until they all got sick. And the Bible says in Psalms, referring back to that, God gave them leanness into their soul. Gave them all they wanted, but their soul was shallow. <laughs> if you ask Evan the story, he says one big bird came in and dropped a ham on the people. And I'm thinking, <laughs> something was lost in the storytelling here. Um, so, I'm, I come hesitantly here I'm, in explaining the scripture. I'm seeing what he kept, takes away with. I don't know what you're going to take away with this. Um, but, you know, here's this, this, the, the theme of gratefulness. Did you know the Bible talks about in the end times? One of the signs of the end times, according to 2 Timothy chapter 3, is that there's going to be a growing unthankfulness. 
Now, we're going to learn a lot more about the end times come next Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. Dr. Jim DeYoung will do a wonderful job. Um, he is the guy, some of you asked me, is this the guy we hear about on the radio, on the TV? And yeah, this is the guy. Uh, he'll be here, and it's, it'll be a treat uh, for us, and we'll learn a lot more about that. But the Bible says that one of the symptoms of end times is a growing unthankfulness that'll be there. So, the Spirit of God comes into a believer's life and brings he or she to a continual state of thankfulness of what God has done. And you've got a story, a little story in Luke 17, verse 11 through 19, that seems to demonstrate this idea of gratitude, of, of thankfulness. So many people, uh, like the folks in this story, are going to be blind to the many blessings that God seems to shower upon us daily. Do you know the Bible says in, in Lamentations chapter 3 that every day there's going to be a new expression of God's love and mercy to us? Every day there will be a new expression of His loving mercy to us. So we are blind, many of us, to the, to the God's blessings that He showers on us. We wait to see the sun shining. We don't give thanks to God. And we, we hear the birds chirping. We see beautiful flowers and trees. And, but we don't give a moment's thought to what God has given uh, in these blessings. And, and give them, uh, given us the, these senses, physical senses, to enjoy them. We grumble about having to eat the same old cereal. Forgetting about the fact that there's many who would gladly exchange places and eat anything for breakfast. We complain about our jobs and forgetting that we'd be grateful just to have a job or even have the bodily strength to go to work. We complain about a lack of money, forgetting that we spend more in entertainment each month than many people around the world earn as a total income. So I just want to bring this passage to us with a call for us to give thanks to God, a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord. So, in honor of this passage being God's word, let's stand as we read together. We're going to look at what thanksgiving does. What does thanksgiving do? On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. As he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan. And Jesus answered, We're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. You may be seated. In the very first verse of 11 here, what seems to be just context, actually some clues, just some significant theological themes that Jesus is bringing out. First of all, he's on the way to Jerusalem. That was code for the book, in the book of Luke for Jesus is going to the cross. Somewhere along the way, I believe in Luke chapter 9, there's this switch where Jesus kind of says to the disciples, I must go to Jerusalem and there I must suffer many things and be uh, put upon a cross and, and killed by the leaders in Jerusalem. And so when we see this, it's repeated several times from Luke 9 all the way to the end. On the way to Jerusalem, it's, it's letting us know Jesus is on the way to the cross. It has salvation uh, emphasis for us. And then he says he's passing along between Samaria and Galilee. These are the border areas between two regions that identified ethnically two different groups. Obviously, uh, Judea was the uh, Jew, uh, the, the full-blown Jew, that they were devout followers of the Lord. The Samaritans represented a, uh, uh, somewhat of a what the Jews called a half-breed, uh, that many of these were left over from the Syrians' uh, capture of the northern part of Israel. And uh, these were, many of them assimilated with other groups. And the Jews never really saw them as full-blown Jews and looked at them with contempt. Some of the Samaritans were involved in uh, the work against the Jews, especially as the Rome's, Roman Empire came to be. And so there was a long-standing history of um, rivalry, of anger, of animosity between these two. And if you want to insult a Jew, you call him a Samaritan. 
and said, you acted like a Samaritan. So here Jesus, in fact, this was an area to be avoided by good Jews. But here Jesus says he's gone through Samaria before, but now he's in the border area. Uh, this, this is the place where conflicts happen. And he entered a village and was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance. Now, lepers, uh, in the Bible, you see leprosy often identified with sin. In fact, it, it is, came to symbolize sin in people's lives. In fact, in the early days, you, you see Moses and, and you have Miriam when she uh, has uh, sins against the Lord and sins against Moses. Leprosy comes out on her as a, as a sign of this. And, and so you see it often associated with sin. In fact, the word used for, for, cleans, for taking care of leprosy is the word cleansing. Uh, symbolic of, of sin. Now, someone that dealt with leprosy, that was involved with leprosy in the Bible uh, days, was given instruction of Leviticus 13 and 14 as what they would do and don't do. One of the things is they were cut off from worship. Cut off from temple. You couldn't come. They were cut off from society. They were put aside in different groups. And it's interesting that you got a Samaritan with a Jew, with maybe nine Jews, what's implied is that the others are Jews and this one guy was a Samaritan. And so when they would normally be separated together, their, their malady, their sickness bonded them. Let me just share with you, the Holy Spirit isn't the only thing that unites. Sin can unite. Opposition to God unites. It's, it's interesting that, that when Jesus was being brought to the cross, that you had the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Herodians and, and these that were normally political enemies were united against Christ. And so you have Jews and Samaritans united together. They were, they were bonded by the fact that no one liked them. And so here they were, separate groups, couldn't be in society. They had their own camps. Leviticus 13 gives instructions that when people are to come by their way, that it was theirs to yell out, I'm unclean! I'm unclean! With the warning for everyone else, don't touch me, don't get near me, you might get what I have. Sometimes it involved a sign as well. So you're talking about the Scarlet Letter? Alright, those of you who read that book, this is much more. This wasn't just a, a Scarlet Letter, this was a shout, a yell. Don't hang out with me. I'm unclean. One writer described them and said, there he lives without love, without hope, without the simple joys and dignities of life, being smiled at, being greeted on the street, buying fresh fruit in the market, talking politics by the political fountain, laughing, getting to go to work, operating a business, haggling over prices with a shopkeeper, getting a wedding invitation, singing hymns in the synagogue, celebrating Passover with the family. All these are barred to him forever. And so you have these ten who normally when they see someone coming by, ought to be yelling unclean, see Jesus and reveal something else. Now, just so you know physically what we're talking about when we look at leprosy. There seems to be a couple forms of leprosy. Uh, one, a, a, a more dreaded disease, um, and then one that is uh, what we would say more of a mild form. The most dreaded disease is what we know today as, as Hansen's disease. So the two forms, both of them start with either white or pink discoloration of, of a patch of skin. So the more benign form of this is, is limited to the skin discoloration in just a number of places. And in even untreated cases, heal in just one to three years. So there, there's some hope that they, they can get back to society. But the more hideous form of this begins with little nodules which go on to ulcerate. The ulcers develop a foul discharge and the eyebrows fall out. The eyes become staring. The vocal cords become ulcerated and the voice become hoarse and the breath wheezes. The hands and feet always ulcerate. Slowly the sufferer becomes a mass of ulcerated growth. The average course of that kind of leprosy is nine years and ends in mental decay, coma, and ultimately death. Leprosy might begin with the loss of all sensation in some part of the body. The nerve trunks are affected. The muscles waste away. The tendons contract until the hands are like claws. There, followers, uh, there follows ulceration of the hands and feet. Then comes the progressive loss of fingers and toes until the end of a whole hand or a whole foot may drop off. The duration of that kind of leprosy is anything from 20 to 30 years. It's a kind of terrible progressive death in which a man dies by inches. 
Now you can see why they are set apart. No one wants this. Even if it's the mild form, if it starts the same, everyone's concerned. It may be akin to our phone call from the doctor in which someone says, you have cancer. Now, if you can double that diagnosis, you have cancer, colon cancer, kidney cancer, or anything else like that. And then you double that with, now you're ostracized from your family. Anyone you might lean to for support are separated from you. You can't go to church, you can't go to worship, and you, you go to that camp. It's kind of like the drafts go to their hole to die. You just go there. So, that's the state of these ten men. And here they see Jesus coming by. And when he saw them, notice in verse 13, they lifted up their voice saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. That word master is the word usually disciples use to refer to Jesus. It, it implies that they understand authority is in this man. Master, have mercy on us. Listen, I want you to understand something. What, what does Thanksgiving do? Thanksgiving does one thing. It, does, it reflects our understanding of need for mercy. Thanksgiving reflects our understanding of need for mercy. Here these men are. They know they need mercy. They're shouting out with whatever hoarse whisper they can muster out. Have mercy on us. And notice verse 14. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. Now early in Luke 5, Jesus touched a man. And so crossing all social lines of, of what was considered taboo and healed this man. The point here is not how Jesus healed them, but their reaction to Jesus' healing. And so here they are, and, and they get this, and it says, go and show yourself to the priests. Now let me just kind of share with you a little, Leviticus 13 and 14, if you'll read that, one of the things it tells them to do is to bring two pigeons. One of them gets killed, and the other one has the scarlet thread and hyssop tied to its branch, and then the blood of the other is put on this pigeon and it's set free. Isn't it a picture of what Jesus does for us? The blood of Jesus was shed to pay for the penalty of sin, and the blood of Jesus applied to our life, and we're set free. And so he just says, go, go to the priest, because they had it to verify. Now here they are, they still got leprosy, and he says, now go to the priest with your leprosy, and let them diagnose you. Now that seems counterintuitive, uh, intuitive to what we would understand, but what he's asking them to do is, is something else, is, is that it's faith. Thanksgiving not only reflects our understanding of need for mercy, but secondly, Thanksgiving reveals our faith in God. Before we can have faith in God, we have to understand our need for God. We have to understand a need for a Savior, and thus it reflects our, our understanding of mercy. Andrew Carnegie, you know, the multi-millionaire, when he died, he left $1 million for one of his relatives. One million dollars for each of his relatives. And that was a long time ago. That's a lot of money. So what did they do? They, in turn, cursed Carnegie. Thoroughly. What on earth would cause you to curse the man that gave you one million dollars? The fact that he had left 365 million dollars to public charities and had cut them off with just one measly million dollars. They felt entitled. <laughs> Why don't we have the 365 million and we just get 1 million? We're entitled, are we not, for more? The problem that many of us have is that we feel entitled to the blessings that God gives. And we wake up and think, oh yes, the sun ought to shine. I ought to breathe. I ought to have good things happen in my life. And if bad things happen, then that is an insult to the dignity of who I am before God. Doesn't God love me? And we're not thinking about the mercy that God is extending to us. Thus, that's why I want us to think as we begin, what if God did not exist? What if He did not give His love to you? What if He did not give mercy to you? How would life be different? If we don't think about that, then we kind of go into this self-entitled role. 
And as the days go on, man goes worse and worse, growing in unthankfulness as they grow further away from the source of all good in God. So, understand the mercy that's due to us. To know that God does not have to save us. God does not have to forgive us. God, in fact, is mercy in that He's allowed us to live to this point. And the fact that we have all the things that we do have speaks even more to His mercy. But Thanksgiving, secondly, as I said, reveals our faith in God. Notice that one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. The the fact is they had to march believing that God was going to heal them. They, They had to obey, not in what was seen, but what was not yet seen. Not what was now, but what was still unyet. That's Hebrews 11. Verse 1 and 2, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the things not yet seen. And so they're acting upon it. Listen, you cannot, you cannot follow God with the idea that I'm going to have all my questions answered. If you think that you're going to follow God by having all your questions answered, then the fact is you're not following by faith. You're following by reason that God satisfies your questions. And ultimately, we're not saved by reason. We're saved by faith. And sometimes we, ruin, we let what we don't know ruin what we do know. Are we letting what we don't know ruin what we do know? So they act out. Chuck Swindoll said, faith believes in advance what will only make sense in reverse. Do you believe that God is writing a story in your life? Do you believe that God is, is making that beautiful scene of your life, even in the hardships and the difficulties, that there's something to thank God for in the midst of that. And so this one man, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. I wonder what the other nine thought at this point. See, the problem is Spurgeon said this, we often write our blessings in the sand and we engrave our complaints in the marble. We have so much focus on what is needed and we put so little focus on what God has done. We have weekly prayer times where we will ask God to provide for the needs of our life. We will send out emails constantly throughout the week. If you are on that email list, you know how many you get of the continual needs for prayer in our body. It is constant and it is good for us to be so. But I just want to challenge us that maybe our praises need to be as constant as our prayers. Our thanksgiving needs to be as incessant as our prayers are. To write it in marble. And not just our prayer request in marble. And so, this man fell on his face at Jesus' feet. Whereas before, this man had to keep his distance because of his disease. Now he comes up near to him and falls on his face on Jesus' feet. I don't know if you really understood everything about who Jesus was at this point. But he understood what God had done through him. And it was enough for him to take the proper place of worship at Jesus' feet. Jesus said this in John 5, 23. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. And so when we thank Jesus Christ, when we thank God and we worship him, it is the same as doing it before the Father, according to John 5, 23. We cannot properly glorify God if we're not adoring And worshiping at the feet of Jesus. So this man is there at his feet. And he's showing his proper humiliation before the Lord. Why is it proper? Is it ever proper to be at the feet of Jesus? (laughs) Yeah, if you understand your mercy. If you understand the need for mercy. It makes complete sense. The the Maasai tribe in, in Africa have an unusual way of saying thank you. Sometimes they will bow down, put their forehead, forehead on the ground and say, my head is in the dirt. 
<laughs> what if we said thank you like that? You know, thank you, thank you. We're so trivial and fairly quick, but how would it change if we had that custom of, okay, I'm going to put my head down and I say my forehead is in the dirt. <laughs> wow. It changes things, doesn't it? It shows the proper place of saying, if you hadn't done this, I'd be in the dirt. If God hadn't given us mercy, I would be in the dirt. And so, now the, verse 16 brings out this point. Now he was a Samaritan. An emphasis on, he's on the, the hated group. The group that hates the Jews. The Jews hate the Samaritans. He's of that group. Which only brings out the mercy of God all the more. And then the question Jesus asked. And I think this is where we're getting to the point of the story. We're not ten cleansed. Where, where are the nine? Every single one of them received the same mercy power of God. But how is it one has a different response than the other nine? That they all receive the same mercy and power of God. Someone had conjured up some reasons. Perhaps they were waiting to see if the cure was real. Maybe they were waiting to see if this was going to really last. Maybe they said they will, well, we'll just see Jesus later at some point. Maybe decide they had never had leprosy to begin with. That was just a fluke. That was, you know, that was crazy. And then maybe they said, well, you know, we would have gotten well anyway, right? That, that, it would have happened inevitably that would have gotten well. Or maybe uh, we'll, we'll give the glory to the priest because they are the ones that set apart for this task working in the temple. We're, we're going to give glory to the priest. Or maybe they said, well, Jesus didn't really do anything. I mean, after all, he just told us to go. He didn't touch me. He didn't spit on my eye. He didn't do anything like that. He just told me to go. What did Jesus really do? And maybe they were saying to themselves, well, we're already improving. You know what I found? I found in sharing the gospel, one of the quickest ways to make the transition from everyday conversation some of us talk about this is a struggle. You know, we're talking about the weather. We're talking about how the day is going. And next thing you know, we're trying to talk about the Lord and what he's done for us and, and, and Jesus on the cross. I mean, that doesn't always come up in our everyday conversations. Let me tell you one of the, the quickest and most frequent ways I've had in sharing the gospel with someone. I just simply thank God. I just thank God. I was talking with a guy... Before we left on vacation, and he was uh, just had a cast taken off, and he was telling me how he was up on on a tree and twenty five feet up and cutting down a, a limb and fell from the tree twenty five feet up in the air and um, just had some tendons messed up in his hand. And he said, "Man, yeah, I'm going to take it. I, I, this is my second chance." At no point did he ever mention God. Never, never acknowledged it. I just simply said, wow, God has really taken care of you. What did I do? I just shared the gospel or or made a transition to share the gospel. It's simply by giving thanksgiving to God because it's so abnormal. We might say, well, I'm blessed. Who are you blessed by? Who's the one blessing To understand that God is the one. And don't be afraid to say God is blessing you. Do you realize how God has been so good to you? You don't even know. You're a walking miracle. You could have died every day of your life and God's taking care of you. To simply be honest with people around us of what God is doing. This is something that's simple, it's easy, but we don't want to do it because people might think we're strange. Friends, they're going to think you're strange if you're lying. If you don't tell the truth, if you don't be consistent to say the Spirit of God is working in our life. One man points out that while ten men prayed, only one praised. While ten people praised, while ten men people prayed, only one person praised. Even more today, there are more who are prone to pray in a time of need than to praise God when He meets that need. 
Oswald Chambers said, the great difficulty spiritually is to concentrate on God, and it is his blessings that make it difficult. Troubles nearly always make us look to God. His blessings are apt to make us look elsewhere. If the Lord has delivered our soul from judgment, we ought to tell people about that. We ought to thank him for it. It is ours to do. Now, as we keep on reading, he asks the question, where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? What does Thanksgiving do? Well, Thanksgiving, as reveals our faith in God, Thanksgiving reflects our understanding of need for mercy, but Thanksgiving rejoices in God's glory. How do we worship God? It is done by Thanksgiving when we give glory to Him for who He is and what He's done. Notice how Jesus said, this man is thanking Him, but Jesus called it praising God. What we call Thanksgiving, Jesus calls praising God. And then he says, no one was found to return except this foreigner. He's pointing out that it's the one that Jews said they ought to be cast out is the very one who's giving praise to God. The one who knows his need. So Jesus calls him a foreigner. Foreigners were not allowed in the inner barrier of the, of the temple. According to Josephus, there was a sign put up prohibiting foreigners. It's the same word that Jesus is using. Paul is telling us that Christ broke down the barriers that kept the foreigners from worshiping the Lord and says this foreigner is worshiping the Lord. Whether he's admitted in the temple or not, he's worshiping the Lord. Romans 1, verse 18. I want you to listen to this. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his internal power and divine nature, has been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. So what happens when they stop giving thanks to him? But they became futile and their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. You know what Jesus is saying? Or what the scripture is saying? They became dumb. You want to get smart? Give thanks. You want to get dumb? Stop giving thanks to God. That's what he's saying here. They, that their heart got darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. They got so enamored with the things that God gave them, they started worshiping the things God gave them instead of giving thanks to God who made them. And they became dumb. So we'll keep on reading. It's interesting what Scripture has to say about the role of thanksgiving. In fact, he said to them, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Verse 19. Now, the word for made you well is the word for save. Your faith has saved you. Now, I'm going to argue that the other nine were physically healed. But only this man was spiritually healed. Where Jesus says, you've been saved. Spiritually. What was the difference between the other nine and this one? Thanksgiving. Really, Pastor? Thanksgiving? What's so important about Thanksgiving? Well, Thanksgiving reveals our understanding, reflects our understanding of our need for mercy. Thanksgiving is a way to express our faith. Thanksgiving is giving glory to God. It is the, the ABCs of salvation, if you will, where we say admit, believe, and confess. Jesus said it's even more simple than that. It says give thanks to God for what He's doing in your life. And when that happens, Jesus sees it as a point of transition. I said, you're saved. Not just physically. The thing is, so many times we're content with your leprosy is gone. Your inconvenience is gone. You're blessed physically. And we don't pursue spiritually healing from the Lord. Why is it that hardships come in our life? One of the reasons, and I'm not going to say it's the what God is, why He's doing it, but one of the results 
for hardships is that it gets you desiring God's working in your life spiritually. Thanksgiving. What The fourth thing I want to bring out. Thanksgiving responds to God's work for salvation. Thanksgiving responds to God's work for salvation. So, what would have happened if this man did not come back to give thanks, simply? He had been like the other nine, and Jesus would not have said to him, your faith has saved you, has made you well. Now, I was reading this morning, Psalm 17, verse 13 and 15, is a passage that's often struck in my mind. David says, Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand. O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life, who fill their womb with treasure, they're satisfied with children, they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I wake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. I thought... I read that, and David says that's the enemy. People who are just satisfied with having a good life, who are satisfied with just having the treasures of this world and having abundance that they can leave to their children and to their grandchildren. These are the people who are opposed to God and opposed to God's people because they have found their treasure in this world. And Jesus says, God, I don't want to be like that. Help me to have a heart that's not content until I become like you. Romans 12, verse 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God. I beseech you, therefore, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. You know what that sounds like? That sounds like Thanksgiving. By God's mercy, He's beseeching us. Consider all that God has done. And uh, leading up from Romans 1 through 12, which is a great analysis of God's grace and mercy of salvation. Considering all that He's done, then present your bodies as living sacrifices. Or consider Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? God has been good to every one of us. There has been mercy just given to us, blessings poured out to us. And why has that been done? Not so that we can feed it upon ourselves, but to understand how God's goodness is there and for us to respond with thanksgiving. That leads to repentance. Thanksgiving responds to God's work for salvation. Now, what I mean by for salvation... Jesus has done all this necessary for salvation. He died on the cross. He paid the penalty of our sins. There's nothing more that, that can be done. Jesus has done it all. But what is salvation? Salvation is to be saved from God's wrath for our sin. So when Jesus dies on the cross, He removes the penalty of sin. It's no longer there. But as I walk this world, I still have the presence of sin in my life, right? Do you still have the presence of sin in your life? Have you been struggling with sin even this morning, this day? Your attitude? It's still there. The presence of sin. So the Spirit of God comes into our life to help us deal with the power of sin in our life. To become like Christ and not like our selfish sin. This is to be saved from the power of sin in our life. And so when I say thanksgiving is a response that we give to God's work for salvation, as I say, God, you've done great things in my life. I am so thankful because you've given mercy, so much mercy in my life. And I just want to give my heart and life to you out of gratitude. And your spirit of God comes in my life and spews out, uh, pours out this Spirit of thankfulness because of the Spirit of Christ. It is how God is working in my life to become like Him. So therefore, I can say thanksgiving is a response to God's work for salvation. Not just the penalty of salvation, but the power of salvation in my life. Or the power of sin in my life. That I ultimately look toward the very presence of sin being removed as I join with the Father in heaven. Hebrews 13 Verse 15 through 16. 
through him, referring to Jesus. Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Through Christ. It's continual. It's incessant. It's no ending. Let's just keep on giving a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Oh, God, you have been so merciful to me. Praise the Lord. That's the word hallelujah. Did you know that when it says hallelujah, it says praise the Lord? It's not just an exclamation. It's also a command. Praise the Lord that he's giving out to us. And so we give it with the, with the words of our mouth, the lips. Verse 16. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. I'm tempted to think as I look at the New Testament and as I read the Old Testament, I think, well, you know, the sacrifices of the Old, that was just old time. That was before Christ came. Now all I got to do is just praise God. Thank Him with my lips. And God's content with that. Oh, it's so good to be in the New Testament era when I don't have to share my resources. I'm not inventing stuff. This is stuff I've thought before. And I know that if I thought it, you've got to be thinking it too. I'm not that strange. But I read this, and I'm like, oh, well, that's just one little blurb, but that doesn't count. No, it's in the Word of God. How do we give the sacrifice of praise to God? Yes, the fruit of lips, but then it says, do not neglect to do good and share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. It is proper, it is right to say when God has done wondrous things in our life, above and even beyond salvation, all things are in Christ. But, but when we see these, these things that are happening in life and we say, God, you know what, we've got a surgery here and I pray, Lord, that you will work in the surgery and we pray for healing, we pray that your work be done and maybe it comes out in a way that we see a healing take place or perhaps maybe we're... we're Paying, uh, praying for help in our workplace or helping us deal with people in our life, praying for a marriage situation, praying for a child situation. We see God work in that. Or perhaps maybe we, we pray because of a financial struggle in our life and we ask God, help us. We need your provision. We count on you to be the provider of God. And God comes through and provides for us. Or perhaps maybe God's blessed us above and beyond and maybe uh, different gifts of money that's come our way or houses or things and cars and stuff. And, and, and we say, thank you, Lord. That was, you're so good. But I'm wondering, are we writing the praises in sand and writing our prayers in marble? It is right. It is good in those times to say, God, you have been so good to me. I will not neglect to do good. I will share what you've given to me for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Joni Erickson Tata, many of you know of her, through her radio programs and books. Those of you who don't know, she broke her neck years ago in a diving accident and became a quadriplegic. Shortly after accident, she was in the church and everyone around her was kneeling in prayer. She was overwhelmed with despair because she thought, I'll never be able to kneel again. Then she writes, I remember the kingdom resurrection. Just before the party gets going in heaven, the wedding feast, the lamb, the first thing I plan to do is a plan with resurrected legs to drop on grateful, glorified knees. And kneel quietly before the feet of Jesus and then going to be on my feet, dancing. Can you imagine the hope? Imagine the hope of someone with permanent spinal cord injury. Can you imagine the hope that this even gives one who is a manic depressive? No other religion promises new bodies, new material universe. Only in the gospel of Christ do people hurting like me find such enormous hope to live. And we're thinking, what, Pastor, that's in the future. That hasn't yet happened yet. Meanwhile, I've got arthritic knees and I can't move like I used to. Meanwhile, I've got burdens and problems and I don't see my way out. I would just say to you what Jesus said to these men. Go to the priest. Go to the priest and let them declare it. In other words, 
act out what you know what God can do, what He will do. This is part of what faith is. It's not what you see now. It's to believe what God will do. And this is where John Erickson Tata comes and says, I long for this hope. I look for this hope. And it is this hope that keeps me going through the days when I can't even fill my legs. There'll be a day in time when God will make all things new. And that's my hope. And I will give my sacrifice of praise today in what God will do. I just want to challenge you to give a sacrifice of praise. And yeah, we were talking about a financial deal here. And I think, well, Pastor, you're just talking about money. You're just it's for the money. I just want to bring out that Romans 12 talks about being a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. You're giving your life to Christ. You're giving your future to Christ. It's a woefully insignificant deal when compared to money when you've already given your life to Christ. And this is just an expression. My life is a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God because of God's great mercies. So with this thought in mind, I pray that you know Jesus as your saving Lord. You, you reach out and say, thank you, God, for saving me of my sins. Thank you for forgiving me. Thank you that you want to give your Holy Spirit to me. Thank you that you want to make me like you. Thank you that there is a hope I have now in this life that nothing in this life can take away. Thank you. I love you. And let God's goodness lead you to repentance. To turn to Him. Let's pray.